found in the Struce. Congratulations, you've made it. The Value of Money Going to Different Groups by Toby Ord, 16 May 2017. 20 upvotes, tags, economics, global health and development, front page. Podcast note, this is a short link post. I will read the post and then the link. I will probably skip the comments. The reason, one reason I'm focusing on this is because I think that this issue, um, one, is something that underlays a lot of calculations made by effective altruist aligned charities and, and charity advisors. And two, I think this is actually an issue that has been studied and thought about and to some extent measured to a great extent by economists throughout the 20th century, uh, perhaps particularly interesting to development economists, and I presume something that is discussed and um, operationalized by large organizations um, such as Center for Global Development, sort of academic-aligned ones, um, as well as large intergovernmental organizations like the World Bank. So I want to read it. I might chime in with a comment or two, and I'm hoping to do some work in this area trying to align or to compare what's done here to the consensus and the state of the art in the economics, um, welfare economics, so, uh, social choice, public choice economics, development economics, literature, um, and put a perspective on it. Okay, that was a bit of a long digression. The Value of Money Going to Different Groups by Toby Ort. We all know that an extra dollar is worth more to you the poorer you are. That's why it can be good to donate money to an organization like Give Directly, even when a few cents in the dollar get used up in transactions costs. But how much more is it worth? Economists have a good quantitative model of what is going on, which can able, enable us to make rough comparisons about whether, say, people on $1,000 per year would get more value from an extra $100 than people on $2,000 per year would get from $200. Podcast note. Note that he's comparing, different, comparing two different sums to people with two different starting incomes. This can help us work out how much additional cost we should bear to get money to the very poorest people. It can also be useful for improving our thinking about the relative values of different financial flows, such as remittances and aid. It is easy to find out the sizes of these in dollars, but what about the size in terms of value to the individuals? If the individuals in one case are substantially richer, then this can really change things. I've written an article, linked, explaining how all of this works up on Center for Effective Altruism.org. Have a read and let me know what you think. I, this is very relevant to decisions made by organizations such as Give Directly or choices between Give Directly and other organizations. As you're probably aware, Give Directly is an organization that does try to find the poorest people in the world and distribute money to them. But finding the poorest people may be very difficult, and they might put in a lot of work trying to figure out if one population is more poor than another population, and that work could be at some cost. Work written specifically on the CEA.
uh, research report web page PDF. The value of money going to different groups posted on Tuesday, May 2nd, 2017. Last update, Wednesday, February 19th, 2020. All right, some of this repeats what was in the post. It is well known that an extra dollar is worth less when you have more money. This paper describes the way economists typically model that effect, using that to compare the effectiveness of different interventions. It takes remittances as a particular case study. Podcaster, by remittances, I assume he means money being transferred, for instance, between people in one wealthier country and their relatives back home in the poorer country. Although he might be talking about other things like if directly. Header, assessing the marginal value of an extra dollar. The poorer someone is, the more an extra dollar is worth to them. This effect is often taken into account by economists, particularly when analyzing how individuals assess risky situations. Podcast note, um, in fact, this is largely how economists gain, think, claim to gain a purchase on the relative value of income in different states and some sense of the um, curvature of the utility function through this expected utility framework. Um, but I won't go into too much detail about that, but just to note that there is some controversy about the expected utility framework, and it's the axioms that underlie it. You may have heard of something called the Elias paradox, and also about whether the, uh, or maybe relatedly, about whether choices people make about uncertainties, about what are called lotteries, about risky situations, whether those should meaningfully be ascribed to reflect the actual value they gain from additional income in the different situations. Sort of, it's sort of related to idea of revealed preferences. However, it, namely the differential marginal value of an extra dollar, is sometimes, sometimes it is not accounted for. Cost-benefit analysis is usually done without distributional weights. Podcast, I'm not sure that that blanket statement is maybe a little overstated. Economists model this effect using a utility function. The utility function defines a relationship between utility, parentheses, value to the individual, and the individual's consumption over a given time period. Aside here, there's different types of ways of thinking about the utility function and the components of it, and it's not completely universally resolved as to whether utility is something that should be considered to accrue to someone within a particular time period or something that's a function of everything they do over their lifetime. Um, again, economists tend to, or classically or most strictly, consider utility as the thing that guides people's choices, the things that we maximize. Um, and perhaps if you talk to typical economists, they'll be less comfortable thinking of it as something that actually is of measurable or quantitative, quantifiable value. So more they prefer using it to think about, we prefer using it to think about 
utility is a function that describes what choices people will make. Should we use it to ascribe the value they get? That's a little more controversial. The utility function defines a relationship between utility, value to the individual, and the individual's consumption, uh, quote, over a given time period. Consumption is the effective amount of money worth of goods and services they use in a year. Um, there's a footnote here. Let me just rephrase that. Uh, utility and, and re explain it. Utility is often thought of or, or parsed out to be a function of the many goods that one chooses to consume. But you could reduce that and say, well, assume they're optimizing over those choices of goods, services, leisure, etc. cetera. Uh, how, uh, how much utility could they incur if they optimized in the, if they did their optimization with a given amount of income? So I can sort of reduce it to think about utility as a function of amount of money spent on consumption. Many different equations have been proposed for the utility function. But one common form is the isoelastic utility function. Uh, the forms chosen, we know they're all, no, we'll never know what a person's utility function is precisely. We don't claim to do that. Um, although there's people that try to reveal, to, to run experiments and, and look at behavior to make inferences about some aspects of utility function. But these are generally big simplifications. And the question of which utility function is appropriate tends to, but could potentially hinge on what analysis you're doing and what um, sort of cost of oversimplification you're willing to bear. One common form is the isoelastic utility function. This equation has one free parameter known as eta. No, which sounds E for elasticity, which represents how steeply returns to consumption diminish. Uh, what he means by that is how steeply returns to consumption diminish as I consume more. In other words, how much more utility do I get for consuming one more unit? Well, that depends on how many units I've already consumed. And the diminishing marginal utility of income or of consumption generated from that income is generally the st standard way that economists explain uh, risk aversion because consuming twice as much does not yield me twice as much value if I'm an expected utility maximizer contemplating several possible states of the world I would never want to accept a fair gamble if I have diminishing marginal utility of consumption from income. Um, I, because if in one state of the world I get, let's say, uh, X more, and in the other state of the world I get X less, and those are equally likely to occur, expected utility is saying that I will weigh each of those states of the world according to the probability they occur, let's say half-half. So I would never take that fair gamble coin flip because in the state of the world where I, let's say, earn $1,000 more, I'm somewhat better off. In the state of the world where I get 1000 less, where I lose 1000 I'm more worse off because the marginal utility of income is increasing at a decreasing rate. So starting from a certain point, 1000 more always generates less value than does 
then a thousand less loses. That's the diminishing marginal utility of income or of consumption. And that actually also is used to explain time preferences, preferences for smoothing consumption over time. When we, if we think about the model that I alluded to before, where you add utility earned in, let's say each year, and perhaps add it up or maybe discounting across years, maybe not. So the one free parameter, paraphrasing here, in the isoelastic utility function is eta, which represents how steeply returns to consumption diminish in income. And it's, this is me saying here, this is particularly an elasticity parameter. Eta must be between zero and infinity and can be estimated empirically. Estimated empirically, that is really um, challenging and that's is saying, stating it like it can easily be done. That, that is a very difficult and fraught thing to attempt to do. You can make certain assumptions that under these assumptions you might be able to get a decent estimate of it. If you assume, and then this is also assuming the underlying model, assuming that the person in fact is maximizing according to this utility function or valuing according to this utility function with this particular form, the isoelastic utility function. The equation for utility U at a given consumption level C with elasticity eta is U of C is equal to, and there's a two-part equation, it's equal to C to the power one minus eta minus one, consumption to the power one minus eta minus one, all over one minus eta for values of eta other than one. And because the above would be undefined when eta is equal to one, it's just simply equal to the log of consumption when eta is set equal to one. From this, it follows that for eta equals zero, utility is linear in consumption. Let's look at that. So if eta is equal to zero, then we have c to the one minus zero, or just c to the one minus one, divided by one minus zero, so you end up with just c minus one. Utility is equal to my consumption minus one, and of course, the minus one really does not matter in making interpersonal comparisons, and definitely not in considering the choices people would make if their utility increases simply in their consumption at rate C. In fact, even when we're talking about choices over uncertainties, I can, at which I said before, the utility is only identified up to an affine transformation. If one person's utility at each level of consumption is three times another person's plus a million, those two people will behave identically and they will make identical choices when asked about which lotteries or which investments they would prefer. So if eta is one, utility is logarithmic. Sorry, if eta is zero, utility is linear in consumption. If eta equals one half, utility is the square root of consumption. You can do the little algebra there to see that that'll work out. Um, square root will also be increasing at a decreasing rate, will also embody risk aversion. And for eta equals one, utility is logarithmic in consumption. Values of eta above one correspond to utility having a finite upper bound, which is approached hyperbolically as consumption increases. That would mean that there would be some maximum level of utility one could attain. That's not so important. The fact that it is a maximum, perhaps not that important, 
because you still, but you'll still be getting better and better off as you have more income, but it'll just approach some limit. Well, if we're in a framework where we do think we can add up utility across individuals to generate social welfare, then of course that would mean that the highest incomes would have almost no uh, weight in our social welfare function. Eight, I, th I guess I would think of ADA as the proportion by which utility increases as I increase my consumption by some proportion. So I believe ADA equals one would be every time I get a, at the margin, 1% increase in consumption, I have a 1% increase in utility. Augmenting anyone's income by a certain percent would be equally valued. What equally valued means, I think we'll have to get to that later and maybe formalize it because when we talk about equally valued, we have to think about, well, how are we weighing utility across individuals? The main use of the equation is to just to compare the slope of the curve at one consumption level to the slope at another consumption level. For example, the ratio of the slope at $1,000 per annum to the slope at $10,000 per annum shows us the relative value of giving an extra dollar to someone with consumption $1,000 versus to someone with consumption $10,000. I'm a little bit unhappy with the way this is stated. I think I said that in a note because we shouldn't state it in terms of 10 times more utility because utility is not really something we see we can measure. When performing this calculation, the equation is very simple. Giving a dollar to someone with K times as much consumption as someone else is worth only one over K to the eta power times as much. There have been many attempts to measure eta, and it has typically been found to be between about one and two. If eta equals one, then we have logarithmic utility of consumption, and we have the very simple rule that a dollar is worth one over k times as much if you are k times richer, and that doubling someone's income is worth the same no matter where they start. If eta equals two, then we have to raise this to the power two. So being 10 times richer would mean a dollar is worth just one over a hundredth as much. And doubling your income is worth much less the higher your starting income. The truth is probably in between these limits. Here, we're basically implicitly assuming or using as our approximation this isoelastic utility function. Of course, that's far from the only utility function we could use to aggregate into a social welfare function. It has the nice property that utility or welfare will increase with proportional changes in income rather than with absolute changes in income, which definitely seems reasonable. But it's a one-parameter model. Um, which means that it's their relationships are restricted to give you an example of that So whatever what this means is that whatever we say about the relative value of income in proportional terms Between two particular groups of income. Let's say the rich versus the very rich Automatically implies a relationship between the relative value of proportional income for any other two groups Say the extremely poor versus the very poor 
So suppose that we are estimating an isoelastic utility function and we used data from people earning 100,000 per year versus people earning 200,000 per year. And we found that 10% increases in income for people earning 100,000 were somehow valued twice as much as 10% increases in, in income for people earning 200,000. So we said that when you doubled income, you must um, have the extent to which additional income is valued. Well, that would, if we have an isoelastic utility function, that would automatically imply that there must be the same relationship for people, for the additional utility or additional value of income between people with 1,000 in income and 2,000 in income. So it must be half as valuable and no less for people with 2,000 in income as for people with 1,000 per year in income, etc. There's no reason to think we need to have only a single parameter. It might be that, for example, it could be that at low levels of income, um, doubling of income has huge increases in your welfare uh, relative to at slightly less low levels of income. So suppose that a $200 per year income, a doubling of income vastly increases your welfare. But at $1,000 per year of income, it only moderately increases your welfare. But then it could also be the case that maybe the extent to which it increases your welfare at, say, 50000 versus 100000 in income is approximately the same, or 200000 versus 300000 And in fact, if we were to estimate it from one part of the data or from one group and try to apply it to another part, we might be very wrong. So you could see how this could go badly wrong when applied to an empirical estimation that you try to make inferences from one group to another group. That said, it does seem like a major improvement over assuming that the value of a dollar of income is the same to anyone no matter their starting income point. And I think it might be a decent compromise slash starting point for a fairly simple but flexible model. When it's been estimated, he says, it's been found between typically one and two. By the way, think about how would you estimate this? It's actually something that's extremely challenging and, and controversial to estimate. Uh, I'll give you a few hints and maybe come back to this later because he doesn't really cover it in this writing, nor do I see references. If you assume that I'm what they call an expected utility maximizer, so I assess the value of each outcome and my utility and then when I'm considering something that might have many possible outcomes I add up my utility in each of those outcomes multiplied by the probability that that outcome occurs and then if I'm making a choice let's say among investments or insurance policies I choose the one that has the highest expected utility the highest weighted probability weighted value then you could ask me about different let's say investments or possible life decisions that have different income values in different states of the world. Consider, when I make these choices, what trade-offs do I take on? For instance, suppose there's one investment or insurance policy that I can choose that in the good state of the world, in the state of the world where I'm already earning, let's say, $100,000 per year, gives me an additional $50,000. But that same policy relative to, let's say, the default policy, that same policy when I'm in the bad state of the world, um, which is where I'm earning only $5,000 per year, 
give me a loss of, let's say, $2,000 per year. So if I chose this, this alternative, more risky policy, you might argue that I value an additional 50000 when I'm starting from 100000 income more than I value an additional 2000 when I'm starting from a $3,000 income. So you could see my revealed preferences between those. Of course, we can all think of reasons why that might go wrong. Maybe I make the wrong choices. Maybe given these are hypothetical choices, I don't take it seriously. Maybe I misunderstand the probabilities. So it, it's very controversial how we should actually judge the data we get from hypothetical experiments. And perhaps it's too difficult to run real experiments involving these important amounts of income. Of course, you might think of ways we might be able to do it at least let's say if all of the things I told you about were only going to occur with a small probability, then it becomes less costly to get a lot of data on this. But then you might argue, okay, people are making choices about what's going to occur in one state of the world with a very small probability relative to another state of the world with also a very small probability. Maybe that's just not um, connected to the actual values they get or the way they actually perceive the world or the way they make choices from day to day. Other approaches you might take, you might look at what insurance policies, let's say people buy in their day-to-day -day life, but you might argue, well, those are constrained in many ways by what's available and what custom dictates that they choose. Um, and you just might not have that much data on that, particularly for very poor people. Another approach relies on very strong assumptions that the amount of money someone's willing to pay for something tells you about how much value they would get from that money when spent on the next best thing, because our economic framework is that people will optimize and will only be willing to pay an amount to acquire something or consume something if they can do no better with that money. So I could think about something that might be represented similarly, might, that we might think, okay, this is really the same thing across different individuals. Let's say a particular improvement in health state. And we can ask different people starting from different incomes. Consider this state of ill health. You know, you're suffering in this way for this many days. How much would you be willing to pay to avoid that and instead have decent or perfect health? And then we can compare the differences in how much the different groups are willing to pay for that. And then suppose that basically someone or the typical person earning $1,000 a year is willing to pay $100 to improve their health in that way for that period of time. Whereas someone, the typical person earning $10,000 a year is willing to pay, let's say, $1,000 for that improvement. Then our neoclassical economics model impels you to believe that the person earning $1,000 per year will get much, will get as much utility, get, will get as much benefit from an additional $100, which is the amount they were willing to pay to avoid that kind of pain, as the person earning $10,000 per year would gain from an additional $1,000, because that was the amount that they were willing to pay to improve their health and avoid that pain and avoid that unpleasant state. So those are the sort of go-to approaches as far as I know, but you can, I'm sure, imagine all sorts of problems with, with them. 
uh, with applying these, with getting reliable answers to them. Um, will these answers depend on how you frame this? How will I aggregate this across different individuals that say different things? Can you really expect people to be able to envision these states, uh, etc.? If a eta were equal to two, then being 10 times richer makes a dollar worth only one hundredth as much. So doubling your income is uh, worth much less the higher your starting income. It says the truth is probably in between these limits. When doing analysis, one could pick a preferred value for eta and run with that, e.g. eta equals 1.5 or do a sensitivity analysis by calculating both extremes. So one and two, I suppose. I will do the latter. Note that if one wants to allocate moral value to helping the worse off, i.e. prioritarianism, this can be achieved by increasing eta above and beyond the experimentally determined rate, e.g. by adding one to this. I think he's glossing over a lot here. Let's take a step back and think, why do we care at all about this question about how much income increases people's well-being and how that depends on their starting point and how much we think an equivalent amount of income would be to increase someone's well-being by the same amount depending on their starting point. Why do we care about that? We're trying to make decisions and we're trying to value different, let's say, outcomes in terms of how much income each person has and think which which outcome would we would we find better oh we typically call that a social welfare function now one type of social welfare function perhaps the, the most common and standard type is one in which we say all right well how should we value the social outcome let's ask let's make this a function of how much each person themselves values their own lot in life so let's take each person's utility function and then combine those in some way. So our social welfare function would be a combination in some form of everyone's own value or utility function. Well then, how should we combine these? That's a tricky question. We may have subjective views. We might want to ask around what other people think about it. Uh, one, but one compelling story was told by, I believe, John Rawls, the idea of the veil of ignorance, and saying that the outcome we should prefer for society is the outcome that we ourselves would choose if we didn't know who we were going to be, sort of in the pre-birth uh, floating ether out there stage where you don't know who I'm going to be. Well, what distribution will I prefer? What set of outcomes for, for all of humanity would I prefer if I think there's, let's say, an equal chance of me being born any sort of person, creature, let's just say person for now. Rawls' idea was that you'd try to make the worst person as well off as possible, just to avoid that worst possible outcome. But um, economists, I think, tend to reject that. And we, because it basically assumes that you're sort of incredibly risk averse. And if we assume that this person making the decision behind what's called this veil of ignorance is an expected utility maximizer, I talked about that before, you think what let me just add up how well off I am under each possibility multiplied by the probability that that would happen. Well, then what would that person do? That person would choose the distribution of income and outcomes so as to maximize the expected utility or the average utility of all people on Earth. Because we're just saying equal probability of being anyone 
What's the probability that I'm one of those people? One over seven billion. Well, then what's my expected utility? Just average everyone's utility. Okay, so that's how we might think about it. And that's a justification for why we're so concerned with why we're thinking let's add up everyone's value and why we might want to know how do people trade off? How do people value larger incomes relative to smaller incomes? And how do they trade off gains starting from different income states? Now, but he's suggesting that we could estimate how people make those trade-offs and then as a prioritarian, if we don't want to simply add up utilities, then we can just add arbitrarily add some number to eta. Um, I think that's really a weird workaround. Um, I mean, maybe you can make a justification for it, but really what you'd want to do is actually try to estimate whatever it is you think is most representative of this utility function for e of income. Of course, parentheses, another problem here is people's preferences might differ. There might be heterogeneity. Let's leave that aside for now. I'd want to estimate that uh, accurately. And then I might want to apply some other weighting to this, not just adding up utilities, but adding up some weighted function of utilities, or maybe only counting the utilities of the people who are below a certain level or rank. So this is a, a weird workaround that might confuse your understanding of the subject, whether or not it actually confuses the actual practice and whether we get a good answer. Okay, he suggests by adding one to eta. I don't know why one, but that's a number. Next section, consumption multipliers. Table one shows the consumption levels of several different groups of people alongside numbers representing how much more utility they gain from a marginal dollar compared to the gain for a median U.S. citizen. Okay, so here we see some key consumption levels, and he's trying to get at how much more they gain from the marginal dollar. Again, I don't think that the, how much you gain is, easy, is something that's the object we can measure. I would prefer that this were stated in terms of perhaps amount you would need to increase their income to achieve an equivalent gain because amount you need to increase their income is something measurable. But I suppose these could be seen as equivalent. Median U.S. group, median U.S. income, footnote four. Annual consumption, $21,000. Seems a bit low, but okay. Um, Eta equals one, uh, one times, eta equals two, one times. So the baseline group is the median person with a median U.S. income. That's what he just said, compared to that. What about the U.S., someone at the U.S. poverty line? These are all footnoted. $6,000 annual consumption. Um, Eta equals, with eta equals one, their consumption generates, their increasing their income generates three and a half times the value as for the increasing the income of the median U.S. income person. In other words, the way I would like to state it perhaps is you'd have to give them, you'd have to give them one divided by three and a half. In other words, or less than a third of what you'd be given the person with median income to increase their utility by the same amount. So if you had to give the person with median income $10,000, you'd have to give this person around two or $3,000. What about if eight equals two? Well, then it's 
12 times. In other words, give them a twelfth as much. Mean income in Kenya, 1,400 U.S. dollars. 80 equals 1, 15 times as much. 80 equals 2, 230 times as much. In other words, you could give them somewhere between a 15th of that amount and a 230th of that same amount to achieve the same benefit in terms of utility being better off as for some giving that to someone with the U.S. median here stated as $21,000. So you get 200, between 15 and 230 times more bang for the buck by this calculation. World Bank's international poverty line of $230, I guess, per year. I think these are a little bit old because the, the thing was written a little while ago and probably citing slightly older data, but so, you know, increase all of those numbers by a little bit, probably proportionally. There, 80 equals 1, 91 times the bang for the buck, 80 equals 2, 8,300 times the bang for the buck. That, est their estimation, the value of ADUUs matters a whole lot. Look at that, 91 versus 8,300. Give Directly's average recipient, which is $180, has $180 income per year, with 80 equals 1, 120 times the amount, so that's kind of comparable to the internet average World Bank International Poverty Line person, or the person at the International Poverty Line, I should say. So that's 91 times versus 120 times if we say 80 equals 1. But if 80 equals 2, it's 14,000 times greater than giving some amount to someone with a median U.S. income, which is substantially higher than the 8,300 times giving to someone exactly at the International Poverty Line. And... We could compare it to the mean income in Kenya. Remember, that was 15 times versus 120 times with GiveDirectly's average recipients at 80 equals 1. With 80 equals 2, it's 230 times for someone with the mean income in Kenya versus 14,000 times. So the differences there, or the differences and differences, seem to make a big difference depending on whether we set eta equals 1 or eta equals 2. I'm going to guess that if you talk to someone about this at your work, if you're working in this area, uh, maybe even your professor, they'll say, yeah, but, you know, does this really matter so much? It's not going to make a big difference. You know, 8 equals 1, 8 equals 2. You know, we're still, we're still, allowing, uh, still allowing income to be more valuable the lower your income is. And, yeah, thinking it's approximately proportionally valuable, that shouldn't matter much. And, you know, what decisions could possibly hinge on this? Well, you know, sometimes it's easy to say this stuff doesn't matter because then you don't have to think about it. You don't have to do work. But here, it seems like it matters quite a lot, particularly for an organization like GiveDirectly, which will take on pretty large costs if they want to expand their program to more people at this very low income level and could probably much more cheaply pass money to people at this, yeah, still very low income level, but, but somewhat higher. And if I take A to equals 1, well then it's only about 25% less valuable. But if I take A to equals 2, well it's nearly half as valuable. That might make a huge difference. And it'll make perhaps you could say even more of a difference if we talk about passing income to someone with let's say the mean Kenyan income. Right? We're talking about 15 versus 120, so less than tenfold difference. Compared to if 8 equals 2, it's 230 relative to 14,000, which is about a 61-fold 
difference. So if I think of the same benefit, same amount of money spread among more people, can I achieve only 10 times the benefit if I give to the world's poorest person rather than a median Kenyan person? Or can I achieve 60 times the benefit? Well, suppose that it's 20 times more expensive to dig out that very, very poor person. Then it really matters whether it's a tenfold difference or a sixtyfold difference. Continuing. In Doing Good Better, Will McCaskill talks of the hundredfold multiplier. This is a rule of thumb that giving money to people living in poverty does a hundred times as much good, does about a hundred times as much good as it would in the pockets of someone in the rich country. He considers this to be a baseline for how much good we can expect to do by donation. Well-targeted donations could get additional leverage on this. The factor of 100 is reflected above by the ratios of 91x and 120 times that we see in the bottom two rows. Parentheses depending on how far below the global poverty line the recipient is. Note that it is only a factor of 100 when eta is about equal to 1, which was McGaskill's conservative assumption. For eta equals 2, it's a multiplier of about 10,000 two footnotes here. We can also use the ratios from Table 1 to roughly compare the value of programs to help people living in poverty within a rich country like the U.S. or to help people living in the poverty in the poorest countries. The U.S. poverty line is about 25 times higher than the World Bank's individual poverty line. Sorry, than the World Bank's international poverty line. Thus, if money was directly given to people at these incomes, one would expect it to go between 25 times 8 equals 1 and 625 times 8 equals 2 further if targeted at people in global poverty. Any particular intervention might be better or worse than a cash transfer by some leverage factor, but if we have no reason to believe these factors are generally higher for one type of poverty than the other, then this ratio is unchanged. I'm not sure exactly which ratio he's talking about here. I think he means something about whether the intervention, let's say anti-malarial bed nets or, or, or chemotherapy prevention or something like that, uh, if that is relatively targeting poorer people than something else, then we can, if it's not, then we can maintain those ratios. Not sure. And if we do have some information about which has higher leverage, I guess he means which gets at poorer people, this is simple to incorporate. This approach is very general and can be used in many different types of income impact evaluation. For instance, it could be used to compare the additional value of targeting the poorest people in the country rather than the median, showing you how to balance this advantage against the additional costs of that targeting. These ratios can also be used to adjust unweighted cost-benefit analysis, weighting each person's willingness to pay by the relevant multiplier. A side note here, economists might often ignore that for the reason when, when they're thinking about a national policy, we might think, well, let's generate the greatest benefits in a sense in terms of willingness to pay in monetary benefits. Now, will that lead the greatest benefit if we take into account the distributional implications of that? No, but perhaps at zero cost or at a low cost, we can then achieve the best outcome by doing the policy that makes the pie as big as possible and then redistributing income, at least if I can redistribute income in a way that doesn't distort the economy or cause other major costs. 
So I enact the policy that people value the most in terms of willingness to pay, and then I redistribute any gains to achieve the best distribution of income and consumption. However, if I'm not a government, if I'm a, someone donating to charity, well then, I don't think that the government's necessarily going to do something that will make up for the different redistribution of one policy versus another. So I will want to take that redistribution into account. And maybe for government policy also, we don't necessarily assume that redistribution will occur or that it'll be costless to do. Leverage. Sometimes non-monetary interventions can help an individual more than a simple monetary transfer. The quote leverage of a particular intervention is its benefit cost ratio, where benefits are assessed in monetary equivalents for a particular group. If the leverage of an intervention is greater than one, then it outperforms a monetary transfer to the affected individuals. Note that the idea of leverage is only defined relative to a particular income level. So I guess I misinterpreted leverage in the previous context. It's not about how much does an intervention tend to help the poorer rather than wealthier people. It's about how much does it benefit those people in excess of a direct monetary transfer. A particular case of examining leverage comes from an exercise done by GiveWell where its staff tried to judge the relative value of donating a dollar to give directly to that of donating a dollar to the Against Malaria Foundation, AMF. The median estimate was that the AMF program does about 2.2 times as much good per dollar, while the highest estimate was that AMF is 13 times more effective, footnote 11. This suggests that AMF's leverage is around 2.2. Various meta-charities have also compared their effectiveness to that of the charities they directly or indirectly raised for, since they are able to leverage donations to them by encouraging effective giving. Several such effectiveness estimates are summarized in the table below, although we should highlight that these estimates may not be very robust. And the footnote here says that, note nota bene also that these figures assume the average effectiveness tracked by these, of donations tracked by these meta-charities is equal to give directly's effectiveness. In, in reality, many of them were to Against Malaria Foundation and other charities that may be more effective than give directly, so the relative effectiveness for the meta-charities may be underestimates. A full estimate would include an assessment of the meta-charities' true leverage ratio and assessment of the efficacy of all the charities they diverted funds to. My guess is here that when these meta-charities are talking about their effectiveness, they're doing something like saying every dollar donated to us has some multiplicative effect because we devote some or all of it to fundraising that raises even more than a dollar for the effective charities. But here I'm just guessing. So here there's a table, charity and relative effectiveness. Ver table two, various rough estimates of relative effectiveness of some key charities. Give directly, benchmark 1x. Against Malaria Foundation, median estimate, 2.2 times. Giving what we can, parentheses, already donated to top charities, six times. I'm not completely sure what they mean here, already donated to top charities. The Life You Can Save, 
nine times. Against Malaria Foundation, highest estimate, 13 times. Raising for Effective Giving, 2016 average fundraising ratio, 17 times. I think bringing in these charities that fundraise for other charities and using their numbers is a little bit of a red herring here. So far, we have introduced the idea of an income multiplier, as shown in Table 1, and a leverage ratio, as shown in Table 2. We can now combine these ideas. The value of a dollar to a particular intervention, relative to some baseline, is simply the consumption multiplier for the group it affects, multiplied by the leverage ratio of that particular intervention. So effectiveness is consumption multiplier multiplied by leverage ratio. I think this seems right as long as the leverage ratios are calculated for the very group that is being helped. So then we could say maybe, for example, just making this up, bed nets are twice as valuable as cash that costs the same as those bed nets being given to the group that are being helped by the bed nets. But the group that are being helped by the bed nets, let's say they're in turn, uh, a dollar to them is worth twice as much as a dollar to the group that is being helped by give directly. Then I would multiply those together and say bed nets or funding for bed nets has four times the impact, multiplying the leverage times the um, uh, consumption multiplier. We can now apply this to make some comparisons between things on both tables. A dollar to give directly is roughly the same as a dollar to the typical person it serves. Parentheses, about 90% of donations go through to recipients and assuming that there is not too much variation in the consumption level of recipients. Now, we can use the fact that relative effectiveness is leveraged multiplied by consumption multiplier. A dollar to AMF is worth 10 times that of a dollar to give directly, which, on the assumption of eta equals 1, is worth at least 120 times as much as a dollar in the pocket of a person at the U.S. median income. Therefore, that dollar would create about 1,200 times as much value if donated to AMF, a hundredfold multiplier with a tenfold leverage. Okay, so here, I guess he's assuming that the people benefited by AMF are the same as the people benefited by Give Directly, and I don't know where the 10 times number comes from, uh, and, but I guess that's the leverage somewhere between the lowest and the highest estimate. Um, and so then he's saying, if I multiply that money to people served by give directly with eight equals one is worth 120 times as much as money in the pocket of the person with a U.S. median income. And then I multiply that by the 10 times leverage that AMF, that these malarial, anti-malarial nets have 10 times the value of cash that yields a 1,200 times multiplier relative to just giving money to a median U.S. resident. But he didn't make the comparison here between Give Directly and AMF. Case study, remittances. Remittances are transfers of money from foreign-born workers to people in their home country. The sort of analysis used above can also help us think about the importance of making remittances more effective. I know there are some organizations, charity, for-profit, benevolent, that are trying to reduce the transaction fees associated with remittances. 
Table 3 shows the scale of some important global expenditures. Group and annual spend. Group. Global fund. Annual spend. $4 billion. I'm not 100% sure what global fund means here. DFID health spending. $3.5 billion. DFID being the United Kingdom's Agency for International Development. DFID total spending. $14 billion. Total aid, $160 billion. I assume he means this is total official development assistance to poorer countries from wealthier countries. Total remittances, $436 billion. Many have noted that remittances dwarf all aid, at least in terms of the raw size of the monetary flow. Should individuals and groups like GiveWell and Giving What We Can focus more on them? We can use the earlier results to help with this. I don't know of any good figures for the consumption distribution of remittance recipients, but would be surprised if the relevant average, parentheses, which is not the arithmetic mean, footnote, the relevant average is somewhat complicated. If eta equals one, we should use the harmonic mean. Note in particular that not only the arithmetic mean, but also the distribution of consumption values should be accounted for. If so, he means if it's at least 10 times that average, then the total of remittances is worth the same as about 4 billion to 40 billion allocated through Give Directly. Thus, since total aid spending is around $160 billion, the mean value of aid dollars only needs to be something like two and a half to 25% that of Give Directly for the value of aid to outweigh that of remittances. It seems likely that aid spending meets this bar, particularly since total aid spending includes a substantial amount of money on things that are much more effective than give directly. As an example, even just the $4 billion of aid that goes on the global fund only needs to be one or 10 times as effective as give directly to outweigh remittances. Therefore, it seems likely that total aid spending is worth at least as much as remittances are. I don't understand why that comparison is important. Who cares if global aid spending is more or less important as remittances? I also would guess that there are many people, including in the EA community, that think official development assistance is much less effective than even give directly. But why am I banging on about that if I said the comparison between aid and remittances doesn't seem like particularly important for any decisions we have to make right now. We could also evaluate the size of benefits we could get by improving remittances, such as by eliminating remittance fees. The average cost of sending back remittances is about 8%. Thus, about $34 billion per year are lost to the poor in transaction fees, which could theoretically be reduced to near zero. Let us again assume the relevant income average of remittance recipients, recipients is about 10 times that of give directly recipients. According to this estimate, the amount currently wasted in transaction fees is worth something like 340 million to 3.4 billion equivalent to give directly per annum, a very large amount, but smaller than it might have initially appeared. Some concluding thoughts. 
I think this mostly gets it right, and I think it's good to start introducing people to these ideas surrounding how can we think about the differences in values in, in dollars going to poor versus very poor people. At the same time, I think Toby's a philosopher, not an economist, and he's not used to explaining these things, and he's getting some things a bit wrong, bringing in some irrelevant or red herringy points, and also missing an important part of the story, the social welfare function. He's also missing how just darn difficult it is to estimate this stuff, as well as I think he might be overselling the generality and the the sort of general widespread acceptance, well, of a lot of this stuff, but in, including the isoelastic function. Now, how could we do this better? Uh, I think on the plus side, Toby and GiveWell and GiveDirectly and the EA community really do care about this stuff and about getting it right. And I think they're willing to take the time and, and pay the intellectual costs and, and make the difficult arguments. My impression, which is a little bit of a shallow one, is that actually at big organizations like the World Bank um, and development organizations, they don't pin themselves down on this. They don't take a particular um, take a particular stance or justify that stance very well. Uh, I've heard either they count all income as the same, or yeah, I'm just guessing here. Maybe they count all income as the same within particular ranges of income, or uh, potentially I think they might, in fact, adopt the isoelastic uh, utility function rule that we've been talking about with uh, elasticity parameter one, in other words, log utility. Why log utility? Well, why not log utility? Okay, well, that's not a good answer. Why log utility? Because it just looks a little bit less complicated than, than the more, uh, than the isoelastic function with, with different exponents, and it's a bit easier to explain. But that really doesn't justify it, does it? Maybe J-PAL or Innovations for Poverty Action, etc. Um, maybe some organizations like um, J-PAL or IPA or CGDEV that have more academic flavor do take these more seriously. That's something I want to look into more and uh, hear more about. But my suspicion is the academic, and what I know from the academic literature is that it's largely about saying how impossible these comparisons are, or here's the rigorous conditions, assumptions you need to make to be able to make these comparisons. And then there's a lot of discussion about the problems in estimating it. And I suspect that practitioners look at that and say, gosh, there really is no simple answer. This is intractable. Let's just do something simple or do something that's consistent with what we've been doing in the past. So how could we do better? I'm not sure. I would think about focusing on, to the extent that it exists, the work that asks or um, examines how the poorest people that are we're considering allocating money and resources to, how they themselves consider and make choices involving trade-offs between these potential income levels, both as individuals and as communities. Whether that exists, whether there's whether that sort of research has been done, whether there's strong problems with it, I'm not sure. But it seems to me plausibly to be the most sound and easy to justify to others. And I'm not saying that just from the point of view of, oh, we should let 
these people speak for themselves and, and not tell them what to do, because I think there are certain situations in which more educated people can uh, offer advice and guidance and make choices, guide choices at least, that are more advantageous to less educated people. However, I think in this case, it seems like that probably would be the most sound um, because we really want to know, we really want to understand what the trade-offs are at this level of poverty and yeah, how people value that. And I think that's something that maybe, if, unless you're experiencing it, you really can't get a good sense of. And I certainly wouldn't want to make extrapolations from decisions made by much wealthier people starting from much higher levels of income, uh, make those extrapolations from that part of the curve to the part of the curve we care about in making these choices. Well, maybe we can't find an answer at all, but maybe we can find it if we look hard enough somewhere. It could be. Found in the Struce.